Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. So my name's Roy. Happy Sunday. Excuse me. No, my name is Roy. Happy Sunday. You may have confused that as a compound name. Um, If you're a member here, like my wife, uh, Carrie, and I are, um, we're going to ask you to invest in Arbor Bridge Church. And um, you can do that, of course, online, arborbridgechurch.com. Slash give. You know, when I was pastoring, I never had a talk like this. This is a strange language for me. What are you laughing at? <laughs> um, but um, you can invest by snail mail too, if you prefer, if you prefer your money to travel slow. Um, send it to the address here at the church, Arbor Bridge Church, 2500 South Main Street, Ann Arbor. <clears throat> we, uh, at the close of every service, <clears throat> are going to uh, share in communion together, and uh, that's where we have time to reflect on, remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, and uh, give us some time to ponder, give us some time for the Holy Spirit <clears throat> to speak to us. So, I'm very honored to be with you today. I mean, I'm with you every Sunday, but honored to be here standing, sharing with you something that is immense in my mind. And so I'm going to be sharing some very large thoughts with you today. So if you feel like your head's breaking, just raise your hand. And we'll provide oxygen for you. Um, This kind of message doesn't really lend itself too well to preaching. It would lend itself better to a conversation. You see what I'm saying? And so I want to stay on track here. I don't want to deviate. I have a tendency to deviate. I remember when I woke up this morning thinking about this morning... I was thinking, when I was pastoring, this is, no, this is no lie, when I was pastoring a church, <clears throat> there were many Sundays where I woke up in the morning hadn't a clue what I was going to share that morning. And, you know, God's faithful. <laughs> I literally took Jesus at his word to, when he said, don't ponder what you're going to say beforehand, just let me say it through you. And he, he was very good at that. And I give him all the glory for that. Let's go to that first slide, Carrie, okay? We're going to be talking about identification. Uh, Can everyone see that? The print is a little too small, but, you know, I don't get to make slides too often. Identification. That's our theme for this morning. That's going to be the lens for this morning. According to Webster's Dictionary, identification means the act of proving or making to be the same. Identification, the act of making or proving to be the same. And you know why I think it's so huge? This theme of identification is because it's really God's idea. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.26 says that, you know, I I can imagine the father, who is sort of an ambiguous figure for us, looking around his conference room to the son and an even more ambiguous Holy Spirit, and he says, let us. Let us. He didn't say, I'm going to. 
He said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let me ask you this. Do you know anyone who has that ability? Besides your wife, or, you know, I'm just, but you get my point. Do you know of anyone who has that ability? No, of course not. And yet, you can see here that <clears throat> God had some big intention for man, didn't he? To give man such a, a job description, if you will. Something that identified man with his capability. So God created man to be the master of life in the earth, the sea and the sky. And the reason he is not is because he took the law into his own hands and became the master of himself, but nothing else. Man's not the master of anything except himself. But this was never God's idea. <clears throat> Identification is everywhere we look. From the groceries you buy today, and you whip out your plastic card, that card verifies that you have authority to use that card, especially if you have to enter a PIN number. Do you have your PIN number memorized? Yeah. Why? Because you use it every day. Your uh, social security number identifies you, doesn't it? Right? Two-step authentication. Well, there's a mouthful. That identifies you. You are who you say you are. So it's everywhere we look. When you cross the Canadian border, as we do frequently, from Port Huron over to sign you through the Blue Water Bridge, the guy in the booth, when he puts his hand out, what's he looking for? Identification. It's not enough to look at me and so I am who I say I am. No, in my case, my passport verifies that I am who this document says I am, right? Would you ever consider that your passport or your, <clears throat> um, what's the other one? The enhanced driver's license. Would you ever consider them to be unreliable, right? That's absurd. This is who, because your passport, you know, especially, that took a lot of things to bring that document together in that neat little book, birth certificates, other established forms of real life data <clears throat> that says you are who it says you are. <clears throat> so when you compare that to the scriptures, for example, I almost brought my Bible today because you, you don't ever see them in church anymore. It's like an antique. But I have a Bible. You have a Bible somewhere on your phone. Maybe it's a hardcover version. Your Bible has 66 books in it. And it's written by many people over thousands of years who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, meaning God literally breathed something into them. His spirit, truth, knowledge. And it came out through their, through their hands as they wrote those manuscripts. Would you consider the scriptures to be reliable to verify who they say you are? Is it reliable? The scriptures give the most comprehensive identification about mankind than anywhere else. 
But I challenge you, what they say may shock you. There were so many thoughts going through my head as we were singing. And by the way, thank you so much for your ministry this morning. It's it's wonderful. Identification. The act of making or proving to be the same. Whether we realize it or not, we're all identified with something. We like this, we don't like that, we're controlled by stuff we can't even explain or realize we're controlled by. I don't know about you, but I have unconscious biases. Do you know what an unconscious bias is? It's a bias you have here without thinking about it. You don't know where it came from. Unconscious biases, prejudices. This is an indication that we're identified with certain things without really being aware of it. We're not, we, we can't, we don't really see it. We're like the fish in the water. Remember Daryl, Pastor Daryl was talking about fish in water last week? Remember that? Well, I'm going to continue that a little bit. Can you imagine a fish looking out through his lenses and saying, oh, look at the water I'm swimming in? No. In fact, if you want to know what water is, you really can't ask a fish. He can't tell you or she can't tell you. They just swim in it. The ubiquity, I love that word, that's a big word. The ubiquity of the water that the fish swim in is the very thing that prevents them from understanding it. And that's the effect of life has on humans, the life that you're living. You live in a ubiquitous form of life. It's an ethereal kind of water. You just live it. But it's rare for someone to understand it. We approach life based on certain sets of norms. Some of those norms are established by those who swam the water before we did. You know, it's that old time religion kind of song. If it was good enough for my father and if it was good enough for my mother, it's good enough for me. So we take our cues from the people who swam before we swam. It's interesting why they call a school of fish a school. <laughs> they must be learning something. You know, they're, they're, they're following one after the other. One of the life's conventions that we grew up believing is that life is reasonable and logical. One plus one is three after all, right? I mean, that's a logical conclusion. We approach life as though it was a mathematical equation. And you're in that equation somehow. Everything relates to you. But because the conventions of life being reasonable and logical are so sacred to the school, we hang on to those for dear life because that's all we know. All we know. We're certain life is both logical and reasonable. How can we prove that? It's it's betrayed by this utterance. Has anyone ever said this? Why me? Why? Why me? See, you just betrayed yourself. You just betrayed your ignorance. No, you broadcasted your ignorance. Some people try to hide their ignorance while others broadcast theirs, and I'm one of those that broadcast. When you say, why me, you're expressing something that says, this should not be happening to me. This is not right. It doesn't fit into the equation that I have for life. And so you're faced with what? You're faced with an agony. Anyone here ever faced with an agony? 
I mean an agony. I don't mean neuralgia. I mean agony. Yeah. Agony is a very precious thing. You wouldn't say that on the outside, would you? You wouldn't, yeah. Agony is very precious. It's very special. Because agony is a doorway. It's a frontier. It's a doorway into a frontier that you've never uh, known before. Intellect does not open the door into the frontiers of life. Agony does. Everyone suffers at some point in time. Those are doorways of opportunity for us to live life larger, not go smaller. To those who have had no agony, Jesus says, I have nothing for you. Stand on your own two feet. Square your shoulders. I've come for the man who knows he has a bigger handful than he can cope with. Who knows there are forces he cannot touch. And I'll do everything for him if he'll let me. Only let a man grant that he needs it and I will do it for him. If our faith does not help us in the condition we're in during this agony, we have either a further struggle to go through or we had better abandon our faith and go on to do something else. I know that's a stern thing to say. Life is not logical or reasonable. I had a friend years ago who came to my church. Well, he wasn't a friend when he came. He became a friend. But he would always say to me, Roy, he said, everything is as it should be right now. And I just couldn't buy that. Everything is as it should be right now. Life is not logical or reasonable. It's tragic. And the real tragedy about life is when we don't recognize the water in which we're swimming. We're all swimming in some kind of water. It's called life. For a fish to understand the water it swims in, it would have to get out of the water. Is there a problem with that? Yeah, for a fish to get out of the water and to observe the water from the shore, he would gain a whole lot of new information about the water, right? But the information would be short-lived because he's going to croak on the dry ground. That's an interesting problem to have. I know that sounds ridiculous, but uh, the new information is exactly what the fish needs to swim more efficiently, but he doesn't have it. My mother-in-law is here. My wife's in the sound room. We, collectively speaking, we have this home in Canada on the south shore of Lake Huron. Some of you have been there. And as you look at the lake from our house, You can see part of the western shore of Michigan up to the tip of the thumb. What you can't see across going north is you can't see the northern shores of Ontario. Um, Did you know that that lake has a maximum depth of 750 feet? What do you suppose caused that? That was not rhetorical. Glaciers. Did you ever see a glacier move? I've never seen a glacier. But can you imagine if you could watch a glacier, do you think you could see it move? I don't think so. No. No, Teresa's not buying that. I don't think you could see it move. 
But for a glacier to create a depth in Lake Huron, 750 feet, do you suppose that would be a big glacier? Bigger than we can wrap our heads around, right? Think of that glacier moving and carving out the earth. And then think of the mountains that are moving in your life. They don't appear to be moving, <laughs> right? Some of the mountains in your life seem like they're parked there. And so here's a theory. Whatever those mountains, whatever those walls in your life are, my theory is that they're doing a, an amazing job in your life. They're carving out something in your life that will eventually cause you to go very deep in life and understand living the way you've never understood it before. And provide wonderful refreshment for others who come after the glacier has left your life. Lake Huron is over 23,000 square miles of water. That's a lot of water. From the shoreline, you can see little minnows. Little schools of minnows. <clears throat> the same lake has largemouth bass, pickerel, walleye, salmon, and lots of wrecks under the water's surface, shipwrecks. Those little minnows that swim close to shore, they can't appreciate all of this wonderful knowledge I'm sharing with you. Because all they know is the water they're swimming in. Happily playing around, just swimming. The same is true for us. We swim through life ignorantly, possessing only a relative knowledge of the life we live. If a fish is to leave the water, it dies. And the same is true for us. If we're going to live life beyond the frontiers that we understand, we're going to have to die. You can't live as you live now and go beyond the frontier that holds you in its confines. I think it's interesting. Um, we may not be aware of what swims in our water. There's something called death that swims in our water. Life is full of death. It's kind of an ironic way to say it. We're not aware of the death that swims in the water with us. And most people that cannot identify, they can't identify the disturbance that lives with them in their growing life's experience. You know, I'll be 72 in August. I feel like I'm on my second round. I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, I've done this, these laps so many times, it feels like the race is going faster. But it also has given me the opportunity to experience things I've never thought about before. The only thing that's going to open our eyes to the death that's swimming in our water is conviction. Conviction of sin. Daryl talked about this last week. Conviction of sin. The identification with sin. And every human being is identified with sin unconsciously. I say identified because we're one and the same with it. The ubiquitous nature of life really disguises the truth about death in this life that we live. Because we're convinced that it's logical or reasonable... 
our mind is going through a constant readjustment, trying to readjust to make the moves different for ourselves and figure things out. And we become basically self-sufficient in our own logical reasoning that we think life requires. And there is a lot of life that requires logical thinking, reasonable thinking. But it has its frontiers. How is it that we're going to really understand the life we're living in? How is that possible? We've got to to somehow get out of this life while we're still living in it so that we can gain a different perspective about it and possibly even help others. Let's go to the next slide, Carrie. Actually, go to the third slide. Okay? Thank you. To leave the life of sin means death to all we know. The only way out of this life is through the door of death, and fortunately, a door is provided. Have you ever known Jesus to be the door? You know, the door. You got to meet Jesus at the door. (laughs) Because when you meet Jesus at the door, you become aware of things that you never became aware of before. For you to identify or attempt to identify with the resurrected Christ without first doing so in his death is impossible. You cannot identify with resurrection without first being identified with death. Reminds me of, I was traveling, I don't know, on a trip somewhere and I walked into this convenience store And I saw this guy, long hair, he looked pretty mean, and I noticed this 12-inch bowie knife next to his side. True story. Sleeveless t-shirt, and on the back of his shirt, he said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I didn't talk to him about that shirt. I didn't want to go there. You can't identify with the resurrection of Christ without first going through his death. It's not possible. Our identifying, our identification with Christ must begin with his his death. There is where we identify starts with us. This is where our identification starts with us in our death. His identification started with us in his death. It's kind of like we don't really understand what Jesus did when he came to earth. We're locked up in rhetoric. We're locked up in things that we think we understand. And I'm not saying we don't understand them, but it kind of locks us in a place where that's all we know. Our identification with the resurrected Christ begins with the crucified Christ. And as we're made one with him in his death, we are certainly made one with him in his resurrection. This is true. Can I have the next slide, please? Spiritually speaking, God intends to do that with those who have his spirit, to make them the same as himself in likeness while being distinctly human. Just as the Father made Jesus to be made one with mankind while being distinctly God. I think that's an interesting reflection. Next slide. One of the biggest stories, the greatest examples of this desire 
is told in the story of Joseph and Pharaoh. Remember, Joseph was sold by his brothers. Joseph wound up in Egypt. And Joseph wound up in prison while he was in Egypt. And while he was in prison, it was told to Pharaoh that there's a man in prison who can interpret dreams. And Job, or rather, and, uh, and Pharaoh was having these dreams that he couldn't interpret. And they brought Jacob, Joseph rather, out of prison to interpret the dream for Pharaoh. And this is what it says in, uh, maybe that print is small, I can't read it from there. <laughs> Joseph, or rather, Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house. And my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? Do you hear, do you hear the father's heart in that? Wanting to give man this kind of authority over all the land but it's only in the throne that I will be greater than you. That's an expression of hope. That's an expression of desire. And so, I believe this is an identification that is something so huge and so precious for us to live into. I want to talk about coming out of the water Coming out of your water. Next slide, please, Carrie. The story of Hagar and Ishmael. Remember, Abraham and Sarah had the son of promise. His name was Isaac. Yeah. But before they had Isaac... And Sarah realized she could not bear children. She made this unusual request of her husband. I want you to have a child with our concubine. Wow, that's wild. That's really getting out of the water, isn't it? And so they have the child Ishmael. The time came here in Genesis 21 where the child Isaac grew and was weaned. And on the day that Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of the slave woman. That'll put a damper on your party. Get rid of the saved woman and the son, because this son is not the son of promise. That's a, that's a hard thing to hear. And so this caused Abraham a lot of stress because it concerned his son. God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Would you put the next slide up, please? Continues. So early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Have you ever wandered in the desert? <laughs> the desert of Beersheba? 
When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes, and then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away. For she thought, I cannot watch the boy die, as she sat there and began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Agar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Agar? Isn't it amazing when angels show up, they always ask questions like, what's wrong? (laughs) Don't be afraid. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up. Take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water. She saw a well of water. Was that well there all the time? Nobody knows. But that's interesting that it was after the angel spoke to her that she sees this well of water. Next slide. And it says... God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert. He became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a a wife for him from Egypt. Can you imagine? So here is Agar and Ishmael being kicked out of Abraham's house. And the end of the story results in Ishmael becoming an experienced archer and the father of the whole Arabic culture. when it looked like they were going to die. Here's my point. It's this doorway of of death that is what really brings us to life. That's a, a paradox, perhaps. None of us willingly runs after death, hoping to find something more, but that's exactly what happens when we come to this place in our lives called a frontier. The story of Hagar and Ishmael. It's a story of an individual being forced from the water that they swam in to discover life outside the familiar domain. Can we have the next slide, please, Carrie? This verse out of Romans, chapter 5. Let's read this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless. Do you notice the word still? Do you notice that word? When we were still powerless. That's referring to a tense in time. Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you when you were a sinner. When you were a sinner. When you were a sinner. When you were powerless. But you're no longer powerless. Not if you've identified with this resurrection. You're no longer powerless. That's an old convention that we need to be retrained in. This story of being at once time powerless came to an end when we were convicted of sin. When we were convicted of sin, this is when the powerlessness ended. Because immediately 
when we are convicted of sin, it's a split moment in time that we are now identified with the present condition. And the present condition is resurrection. We went from death to resurrection faster than a nanosecond. This is the death we were all baptized into at one time. Baptized into his death. Christ's death actually swallowed death. And the end result was life. Being justified. Being being quickened. Being made alive. Being quickened from the dead. And again, unless we're identified with Jesus in his death, we cannot be identified or united with him in his resurrection. In his death, Jesus created a way for us to come out of the water that we used to swim in. Next slide, please. This is a story of James and John. Perhaps you read it before. This story about... uh, Mom is bringing James and John to Jesus. She kneels down in front of them, him, and Jesus says, what do you you want? We want to know if James can sit on your left hand and John can sit on your right when you come into your kingdom. Oh, he said, well, uh, Let me ask you this. Are you ready to be baptized with my baptism? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you hear ignorance speaking? That's a reply in ignorance. And I'm paraphrasing here, but Jesus is saying, well, I'm glad for your enthusiasm because, in fact, you you will be baptized with my baptism and you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink. But as to who sits where in relation to next to me, that's for the Father to decide, not me. So this is like saying something very big to James and John, and it should be saying something very big to us. That's why Peter said in his epistle, do not think it's strange when you fall into fiery experiences. (laughs) That's part of life. It's part of living. Maybe it's a life that we were not aware of. You know, I'll give you an example. So, my first wife and I got married at 19. We met in high school. We were married 40 years. And during that 40 years, God was white. And I'm a Christian. I mean, I'm a born-again Christian, but my level of experience in life was that God was white and he was Republican. You know, and I was white and Republican. So naturally, God would be white and Republican. But when she died, I was forced out of my water. Do you see what I'm saying? And I thought, how strange that this should be happening to me. I thought that was strange. And no matter how much I read the scripture that says don't consider it strange, I considered it very strange. And I considered it very painful. I didn't realize I was coming out of the water. I didn't realize that there was a big glacier moving through my life very slowly carving out a future for me, for you, for people I've never met. Jesus said to John and James, you indeed will be baptized with my baptism. They didn't have a clue what that meant. Right? How could they know? 
And there are a lot of things that Jesus will say to us that we don't have a clue what he meant. I'll give you, so the woman in the sound room, <laughs> my wife. When I met Carrie, I was still pastoring. And I said, wow, God. <laughs> her? He said, yeah, I'm giving her to you for your, for your wife. I said, you are now, huh? And I said, tell me more. Hey, he said, I'm going to give you my heart through her. Whoa. See, I had a, a very, still had a very strange perspective on how I related to things. And when I heard him say, give you my heart through her, I had this dance of glee inside of me. It's sort of like when a person prays for patience. <laughs> and then the glaciers come. That prayer is still being answered, by the way, in my life, through my wife. And mom. <laughs> Thank you. Let's uh, have the next slide, please. The prayer of Jesus. This is just an excerpt out of 17, the 17th chapter of John. And now, Father, glorify me with your presence while the glory I had with you before the world began. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You know what's happening here? Jesus is coming into this identification with death, right? He didn't start out this way as a baby with Joseph and Mary, but he is coming to the end of his earth suit voyage and identifying with death. And the fact that he uses the word had means that he's living this life that he no longer had before he had it. Correct? In order to identify with mankind in his sin, that is to say the act of making or proving to be the same, Jesus had to leave the glory he held with the Father and come to earth. This was the beginning of Jesus coming out of his own water. Really? Jesus had to come out of his own water? Did you not read in Hebrews chapter 5 where he had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered? I can't wrap my head around that, Penny. But that's what the scripture says. So he comes out of his own water that ended in his death. And it's in his complete identification with sin and death is where we start our identification with him. Next slide, please. To attempt to identify with the resurrected life of Christ without doing so in his death, first, is to merely follow ideas about him through your own dogmas. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I no longer live. That means you no longer live. <laughs> it doesn't mean something else. It means you no longer live. And that's hard to identify with, but that's what the scripture says. And it can be reliable. But Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by the faith of, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Whenever we ask ourselves the questions, why me? It's the wrong question. Because this is not about you. This is about the life of the Son of God in you relative to who you are. If it happened to him, it will happen to you. That's what he told James and John. Next slide, dear. Last slide. Everyone said amen. Christianity, according to Jesus Christ, has never been tried and failed. It has been tried and abandoned in individual cases because it has been found a bit too hard, too definite, and emphatic. And for the same reason, it has been abandoned in nations and in churches. But Christianity has never been tried and gone through with honorably and found to fail. Love never fails. Right? And God in your life is all about holy love. Let's take this time. As we take this, these elements of communion. To pause. To reflect on our identification with Christ and his death. Yes. Thank you. If you haven't taken uh, any elements yet, you may do so at this time. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our church, visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com.